hello, this is Ryan Pauly with Coffee House Questions. And today we have a very interesting topic, maybe one that you've heard about, maybe you haven't. And the topic is going to be transhumanism. I'm going to be discussing a new book that was just published by the RTB Press, Humans 2.0, Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Perspectives on Transhumanism. This book was co-authored by Fazal Rana and Kenneth Samples. And so joining me to discuss this new book is Dr. Rana. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Ryan, thanks for having me again, and uh, please call me Fuzz. All right, I will definitely call you Fuzz from here on out. But I am excited. As you mentioned, again, uh, if those have been listening for a little bit, uh, back in March, you came on, uh, did a two-part uh, series with me talking about Neanderthals and uh, human origins and answering all the questions I had on those issues. So I thank you so much for that. Had some good feedback from those shows as well, uh, but wasn't able to really... I guess, promote some of the work that you do. And so now I'm excited. I have your book in hand. I was able to read parts of it. And I'm excited to talk about uh, the things that you have put out in this. This is definitely a big issue um, that is coming up. And let me give a quick introduction for those that don't know you. I'm kind of all over the place right now. I just got done with a long day of school. I'm back in school. And so it's interesting uh, getting back into this. But uh, uh, Fuzz is the vice president of research and apologetics at Reasons to Believe. He's the author of several groundbreaking books, including Who Was Adam, which is what we discussed last time on the show, Creating Life on the Lab, The Cell's Design, and Dinosaur Blood in the Age of the Earth, holds a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. So Perfect. You've written this book, Transhumanism. Thanks for coming on. Uh, why did you and Kenneth kind of come together to write this new book? Yeah, well, uh, a few years ago, uh, both Ken and I realized that this idea of transhumanism really wasn't on people's radar screens, both uh, neither in the church or outside the church. But we recognize that this is going to be one of the most important ideas that will very quickly shape the way uh, that our, our world views humanity and our destiny as human beings. And the idea of transhumanism is basically this, that we are to use, uh, according to transhumanist advances in science and technology to, in effect, augment human humanity's biological makeup, that we are to use advances in technology to enhance ourselves beyond our, our biological limits, making ourselves stronger uh, more intelligent, more psychologically well-adjusted, with the hope of essentially kind of correcting our biological flaws and in the process minimizing pain and suffering and looking towards creating human progress and maybe some form of utopian future. And many transhumanists feel that we should uh, take control of our evolution as human beings, ushering in a post-human era where uh, we would transform humanity to the point where we would now exist as a collection of different types of post-human species. And through this technology, we could even perhaps attain some type of, uh, of practical immortality. And so this idea has always been the fodder for science fiction, uh, and it's now very quickly moved into the academic mainstream and is very quickly filtering into our culture at large as a, an idea that, again, is going to be viewed as a no longer kind of a fodder for science fiction or kind of fringe futuristic thinking, but rather a reality that will soon be upon us. And so we wanted to make sure, A, that people were aware of what was happening with this movement and how prominent it is quickly becoming. But then also for Christians, we wanted to uh, inspire Christians 
and equip Christians to engage this idea well, to engage this idea effectively. So it sounds like, you know, using technology, trying to make humanity better, fix some of the issues that are going on, that doesn't seem like it's completely bad. Oh, no, not at all. And and this is, uh, in a sense, uh, the complexity of engaging transhumanism, because there's a the, the idea of using science and technology to promote human flourishing, to minimize human pain and suffering are really ideas that are fully compatible with the Christian worldview. In fact, you could even argue that there are very clear biblical mandates uh, within Scripture that would uh, advocate scientific advance and development um, as well as would advocate technology development. So Christians should not be anti-science or anti-technology whatsoever. And the idea of, again, using technology to minimize pain and suffering, to promote human flourishing are wonderful things. Who doesn't want to try to strive for something that approximates a utopian future? That's, again, I think within the, 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 the mandate of Christianity and the idea of, in, in, of, of, of spreading the influence and the impact of the kingdom of God. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with, with wanting to live forever. So these are, are wonderful, wonderful ideals. To me, really, the, the, the challenge with uh, transhumanism is the mode by which we attain kind of our ultimate destiny as humanity. Is it going to be through science and technology or does, or does it have to require a savior? Uh, and for Christians, of course, that would be the person of Christ. So, okay, so obviously, good. I'm, I'm glad to kind of lay that out from the beginning of that this, you, you don't have to have this anti-science view, this anti-technology view, but there are going to be some limits and ways that we're going to discuss that. And so that's kind of going to be what we're going to look at over the next hour is, is what is the technology that's going on and how do we actually use this well? Now, mm-hmm. but you also understood, I think it's important to understand this idea of transhumanism. And so kind of making sure we define this well, but also you mentioned it's part of this kind of continuing evolution uh, does this kind of always fall within an evolutionary framework? Are these kind of connected at all? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, for, for the most part, people that are transhumanists would hold to some kind of materialistic view, uh, a materialistic worldview, uh, though it is a, a variation or a form of secular humanism that would argue that even though humanity may be the product of an evolutionary history, we have attained a certain uh, evolutionary uh, level, if you will, such that there is an exceptional nature to humanity, and so human beings have a, a, a special status within uh, within the the universe because of again what evolution has produced in us, and so therefore human life has value and worth. So it's it's a form of secular humanism. It's definitely very much entrenched in a materialistic worldview, and with that is the idea that human beings are the product of an evolutionary history, and so if we're the product of an evolutionary history, then we are going to be inherently flawed. Uh, evolution doesn't produce perfection, but fundamentally an inherently flawed organisms. And so the idea is that we need to take control of evolution. And so instead of letting humanity just continue to evolve in this you know, contingent, unguided manner, let's take control of our evolution through technology and shape human beings uh, in a way to correct our flaws and to design human beings to be better adapted, better suited to live in a technologically advanced, you know, future. Uh, uh, and so it's very much, uh, again, entrenched in a materialistic worldview. So it sounds like, and and I know we're kind of going to get to this at one point, but that 
it is really taking this idea that, look, humans, we evolved, we're not uh, as we should be, or at least as what we could be. I guess there's no should within an evolutionary framework, but what we could be. And so we're taking upon ourselves, rather than God creating us, designing us how we are supposed to be, uh, we're going to become even pa- past human, right? Transhumanism, uh, go beyond what is human in our abilities, uh, not just simply fixing the mistakes, but actually improving. Um, and that's kind of this distinction where the ethics come in. Would that be correct of not fixing, yes. but improving? Yes, yes. And, you know, when it, when it, we start getting into the ethics, uh, you know, again, it's a very complex engagement because in, in some respects, when you think about transhumanism, you've got to think about the technology that is fueling transhumanism. And most of that technology is actually being designed and developed for biomedical purposes. And so even in the biomedical context, these emerging technologies like gene editing and computer brain interface uh, technologies in and of themselves have a, a, a plethora of ethical questions that arise even in their application for biomedicine. But now when we start talking about using these technologies to enhance human beings, we're now, again, stacking ethical problems on top of ethical problems. But even then, with enhancements, you could see limited human enhancements without necessarily striving for the transhumanist vision. But then when we start thinking about transhumanism, it's another stack of ethical questions. So you've got an ethical house of cards that you're building on top of ethical house of cards where, again, you know, if this thing collapses, you could wind up with really a future that is not anything that we would ever want or hope or desire as opposed to a, a utopian future. See, and this is what makes this so interesting to me is this ethical house of cards where there's so many implications on how to think through. I think a lot of people go, ah, that's just too much. I'm not going to worry about it. Let's just go with whatever society agrees upon. I'm like, man, let's stop and think because this to me, this is fun. This is interesting. Now, in your book, you don't address all of the possible kind of technological advances. Um, One of them I think you kind of mentioned is AI. Um, artificial intelligence. Now, that is a question that came in on Instagram from Micah, which was, should we be worried about AI? So what are your thoughts yeah. as far yeah. as AI goes? Yeah. And, and in the book, we, we only address AI very briefly, simply because in a sense, I don't see AI technically as part of transhumanism. I see it very much part of a post-human future. But with transhumanism, the idea is that we're using science and technology to alter our biological makeup. Uh, And and so we're altering human beings, whereas AI is really an attempt to try to create, uh, you know, machines that have uh, capabilities, cognitive capabilities equivalent or maybe even that would surpass that of human beings where they would attain some form of sentience. So it's very much part of the post-human future, but technically not part of the transhumanist agenda. Now, even though that's the case, we did again uh, address that that issue at least very briefly, and to me, um, it, again, it's it's complicated. But I do what I don't believe we're ever going to create machines that have actual or genuine sentience or a capacity for consciousness and self awareness. What we're going to do is create machines that operate with software that is so sophisticated that those machines are going to almost imperceptibly mimic human beings uh, to, and that we're, we, we won't be able to distinguish between the machine and an actual human being 
that that mimic mimicry is going to be so I think complete. But I don't think those machines ever will be truly conscious or ever truly self-aware. And part of the issue that um, is going to come into play when it comes to again how do we engage AI systems is to recognize that as human beings we have a a property that really separates us from every other creature on the planet, and it's a property called theory of mind. Now, th- th- some people argue that some animals have a capacity for empathy, but as human beings, we're not just simply empathetic, but we have what's called theory of mind, where we recognize that other people have minds just like ours, and that we understand what other people are thinking, what other people are feeling, because of this theory of mind capability. And we have this desire to kind of link our minds together uh, to, to form, um, and that this is reflected in kind of the complex social, social hierarchical structures that human beings form. But the problem is, is that because of our theory of mind, we, so, we also have a tendency to misapply it. And, and this means that we have a tendency towards anthropomorphism where we treat inanimate objects or even animals as if they have human-like characteristics and properties, that they have human-like experiences, human-like thoughts and feelings, which they don't, I don't believe, actually have. And so the problem is, is that when we create these AI systems that become more and more like a human being in terms of its capacity to mimic uh, human behaviors and human responses, because of our t- tendency for anthropomorphism, we're going to view it as if it is like us as a human being. So I, I think that's going to become something that's going to be really complicated as we move into the future and, and start producing these machines where there's going to be a tendency to treat that machine like a human being, to argue that machine should actually have human rights just mm. like a human being. It should be afforded the same dignity and value and inherent worth as we would human beings. And so it's going to really blur, I think, the distinction between what does it mean to truly be a human being and, and you know, and what a, what is actually a machine. So it's going to be, you know, again, a very complex future where AI is part of that. And, and I think um, our ability to engage transhumanism well will prepare us to engage the emergence of artificial intelligence well also. Wow. You know, and I just think that even in our culture today, this idea of what is a human, how, you know, how are we created or were we created? I mean, those lines are already starting to get blurred and we don't have machines that are mimicking yeah. human capabilities. And so what will it really be like then? Yeah. Um, so for those that just joined it, I'm discussing Humans 2.0 with Fuzz Rana, author of this new book. And if you are watching on Facebook, you can send in your comments. I'll try to get to those. Um, so in your book, you mention you know, these possibilities, right? Here you talk about you know, AI is maybe not in the category of transhumanism, not really a possibility to completely mimic it or to have that consciousness as a human being. But you do talk about transhumanism in the kind of category of superheroes, at least when it comes to like Tony Stark. Um, how would that kind of fit in this category of transhumanism? Yeah, yeah. Well, to me, I think Tony Stark is the quintessential uh, transhumanist superhero because he's a, a normal human being who doesn't technically have superpowers, uh, but rather has access to armor that gives that allows him to transcend his biological limits. So it's through the use of technology that he's augmenting his physical strength and his intellectual capabilities. And and yet what we see with, with Tony Stark and Iron Man 
is this this mutual interdependence on human and machine and machine and human where uh, in the comic book story arcs, many times one of the themes that's explored is really this idea of where does Tony Stark end and Iron Man begin, where you really begin to see them as one and the same, where they really begin to lose that the, the they're distinctive because, again, there's an increasing incorporation of the Iron Man technology into Tony Stark's biological makeup. And, and so I thought it would be a lot of fun to begin each chapter with a vignette from an Iron Man comic, just looking at how those comics begin to explore some of the really important themes that are related to transhumanism. And in some respects, you know, the science fiction and, and, and what comic book writers have done is really a favor you know, in that we are aware of already the many of the issues associated with transhumanism because of the exploration that has taken place in science fiction and in, and in fantasy and in, in the comic book arena. But on the other hand, it also has done us a bit of a disservice because we've become, in a sense, desensitized to maybe some of the aspects of transhumanism that are really quite shocking. Uh, but the point is, is that, you know, these these um, these comic book stories at least raise technical or sorry, raise ethical issues that are uh, very important issues, again, connected to transhumanism. And we've already had a head start in discussing them, uh, but it's been in the science fiction context, not in the, the fact that this is a reality upon us. Yeah. And I think a lot of people would really question that and be like, wait, why is it wrong to use armor? Um, here he here he's using his ability. I mean, another movie I recently watched uh, was uh, the Tom Cruise movie, which I'm spacing on the name right now. I have it written down Edge of Tomorrow, right, where they have these mechanical suits kind of like Iron Man. They attach on. They allow you to be stronger in battle and, and kind of give you that advantage. And I think most people would immediately go, wait, why? What is wrong with that? It seems like we have this kind of connection between humans and technology all the time. Yeah, well. And, and, and again, very good point that you're, you're raising. And this is, again, part of the, the complexities of, again, you know, all this human enhancement technology and its service for transhumanism. Uh, because as human beings, if you look at our, our, our history as a species, we have had a long and, and uneasy, uh, but yet uh, utter dependence on technology, an uneasy relationship with technology, but an utter dependence on technology. You know, we, we, uh, it was technology that essentially, um, was critical in establishing human beings as the dominant species on earth. It's led to our ability to occupy virtually every corner of the planet, uh, to increase our, our population levels to, on the order of you know, six, six to seven billion human beings on the planet with the numbers continuing to grow. And this is all thanks to the fact that we are a species that ha that creates and continues to create technology. So technology is very much an integral part of who we are as human beings. And, 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 and we already are using technology to extend our capabilities beyond our biological limits. You and I are talking through Skype. <laughs> you're yeah. broadcasting on Facebook. And so our conversation is happening, though, when we are in remote locations and people are wa watching and listening to our conversation, even though they are in remote locations. So this is an example of technology augmenting ourselves beyond our biological limits. And so it's not so much that we would 
make use of technology to enhance our capabilities or even incorporate technology into our biological makeup that is necessarily uh, an ethical issue. Uh, but, but there are ethical issues that, that are connected with, with doing that type of thing. So, for example, for some people, uh, if we begin to, to interface ourselves with technology where we're really altering our biological makeup, you could argue, well, we were beginning to lose our identity as human beings. And if we modify ourselves to such a degree that we've lost our identity as human beings, have we actually ushered in our own extinction as a species as we are creating, you know, you know, versions of humanity that really are post-human or, yeah. or, or broaching a post-human, you know, reality. Uh, so are we losing our identity? Are we losing our humanity? For some people, this is a very important concern. But then on the other hand, you could say if you're somebody who has suffered a brain injury uh, because of an accident or because of a stroke and you're locked in and you're not able to communicate, being able to uh, to make use of a computer brain interface that allows you to control computer software and hardware with your thoughts that allows you now to communicate actually uh, restores part of your humanity that might have been lost. It helps you to recover your identity as a human individual. Or if you're a paraplegic or a quadriplegic, you know, having the ability to control an exoskeleton with your thoughts is a wonderful thing. Right. But you're going to become permanently, you know, permanently coupled to that that technology. And so, again, are you losing your identity or are you recovering lost identity? So it becomes a very complex issue. So, you know, part of what we were trying to do in the book is be fair and balanced and not to say that we just summarily are going to dismiss, dismiss these technological advances, but we're going to recognize them for for the good that they represent. But also, we just want to also make sure people understand that there are probably lines that we can cross uh, that are really not good lines to cross. So we intuitively recognize that, but it's hard to actually precisely define where those lines and those boundaries are. They're, they're rather gray and nebulous at times. And this is why the Christian worldview is so important, because as what you were just describing of this idea of restoring what we should have, or are we losing what we should be, uh, that Christian worldview actually gives the definition of the human being, of what we should be, how we should function, uh, that we are hopefully restoring people to when using these technologies for a good reason, rather than we're just here for the process of evolution. Who knows what, you know, there isn't that should be uh, that, that we are. And so I think that's yeah. valuable. So I want to get in, uh, and man, we're almost done with part one, and we haven't gotten into some of the specifics. We're talking kind of big, big picture, and I think that's good to kind of get that idea. But one of the first things that you mention is the gene editing. You mentioned this a couple times, and this is actually now a real possibility with the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology. So uh, can we get a little introduction as far as gene editing, CRISPR technology, I've heard it be a good thing. I've heard it now being used as possibility, some re some bad ways. Uh, kind of help get some understanding of what is CRISPR Tech9 and uh, or Cas9 and gene editing technologies. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a, a, a relatively new capability that that we have, where we can use uh, this you know CRISPR gene editing technology to do very high precision, highly controlled uh, uh, editing to 
not only the human genome, but the genome of, of organisms in general. And, you know, this allows us to go in and literally um, delete the certain regions of the genome at will, which could be valuable if you, for example, are trying to remove um, the HIV virus that has been incorporated into the human genome, uh, or you can replace a defective gene with a healthy gene, or you can maybe edit and alter a defective gene so it becomes a healthy gene. There's all kinds of manipulations that you can do pretty much at will with the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing system, and you can very precisely target regions of the genome to carry out this gene editing. And so it's a very powerful technology uh, that is also remarkably easy to use and remarkably inexpensive. And so it's got the real prospects of progressing quickly into a clinical setting where we could use this gene editing technique to, uh, to help to treat people with genetic disorders where, again, you could, uh, in the adult organism, you could target tissues that are uh, specifically impacted by a particular disease, changing the, the defective gene in at least some of the cells in that tissue in such a way that you begin to, you know, to, to minimize the symptoms of the genetic disorder or maybe even help to uh, temporarily relieve the patient of those symptoms. So this could be an incredibly valuable tool. Now, people also are looking at using this uh, and applying it to the human embryo stage with the idea that we can now correct a genetic disorder in that individual and, in effect, cure that individual of the, genet of the genetic disorder. But because it involves manipulation of embryos, you now are opening up this Pandora's box of, all, of ethical concerns uh, that are very real, uh, you know, that um, make the technology frightening uh, because you would, you know, create embryos through in vitro fertilization. You'd have to gene edit them. And then some of those embryos, wouldn't, the gene editing wouldn't quite work right and they would be destroyed and the other embryos would be preserved for, you know, implantation. Uh, so you've got those ethical issues, but now with the gene editing capability, you now have the prospects of potentially creating designer human beings where you could alter human beings' genetic makeup to create human beings that are genetically distinct, unlike anything that has ever existed before, and in the process enhance our physical strength, enhance our intellectual capabilities, and, and the list goes on and on. And now you're beginning to move into another arena where, again, there's a, a very interesting set of ethical questions that arise uh, that, that are become, that are going to become very pressing because this gene editing technology, because it's so easy to use, because it's so inexpensive, is not only going to be limited to people that have, you know, the resources, in, you know, to, to pursue this work, but it's going to be available for people that want to set up these startup companies uh, and provide gene editing services independent of the medical establishment. So, you know, uh, and again, once you start seeing that happening, you, you, you're beginning to move into the arena where we're looking at the, the transhumanist vision uh, becoming fulfilled. I heard in a story or article of a scientist in China that used the CRISPR-Cas9 system and did, did create two designer uh, girls, but then I heard that it wasn't super verified, so people don't know if it was real or not. Do you have any thoughts on that? Have you heard of that? Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, it is true that, that people have shown that you can do CRISPR gene editing on human embryos. 
And in fact, there have been a number of groups that have done that work. But in all of those instances, they've limited the gene editing to, again, the early stages of embryonic development. And they've worked out a number of technical problems so that the gene editing is becoming more and more reliable uh, working on human embryos. But uh, there are actually guidelines in place in the United States and in, the, in, in Europe where you cannot, uh, when you create an embryo in a laboratory, you cannot allow it to live beyond a certain number of days before it has to be destroyed, hmm. either frozen or destroyed. And so people that have done these gene editing experiments have, have destroyed the embryos. Now, again, a lot of ethical issues with that that I'm uncomfortable yeah. with. But what's happened is in China, there's a, a highly reputable scientist who claims to have done the gene editing, uh, again, on human embryos and disabling one of the, the genes that codes for a protein that is a receptor for the HIV virus. And people that are HIV resistant um, actually have a genetic mutation in that gene and so his idea is that we could create human beings that would be resistant to, H to HIV, solving the AIDS, you know, a crisis. Okay, uh, I'm gonna have to cut you off there because we're out of time for part one, uh, but we're gonna pick this back up in part two. So, Fuzz, thanks for joining me in this first 30 minute discussion. Yeah, it's been sure. awesome. That was an abrupt ending, but make sure you come back next week for part two of this great discussion. Also, the week after is an interview with Justin Briley from the Unbelievable Podcast. Don't miss it. Sip coffee, think deeply. This is Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Pauly. To follow your love will guide my way.